Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzinski, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. Our sponsor this week is Narol Pro-Choice Massachusetts and the National Institute for Reproductive Health. So, Lauren, uh, welcome back. You weren't here last week, and actually you're still not here this week, but you're sort of here this week. Correct. I am not technically in Massachusetts. I'm coming to you about 100 feet from the beach in Hilton Head. Uh, but thanks to the magic of technology, I am able to call in microphone in. So I am happy to do some assistance while Steve essentially does all of the heavy lifting while I'm away. <laughs> so I think you're just rubbing it in, talking about sitting on the beach. But anyway, yes, I'm here. I'm in the bunker at Horse Race Global Headquarters. But Des couldn't resist calling in, just like I couldn't sometimes when I was on vacation, because we actually have a very special guest here this week, um, and someone who knows a thing or two about some of the Massachusetts candidates running for president. We have Doug Rubin, the head of Northwind Strategies, and has a long history with both Senator Elizabeth Warren and Deval Patrick. So can't wait to talk to him about both of them and their potential presidential ambitions that we seem to be hearing more and more about. Absolutely. I could not miss that segment. Steve also uh, talks a little bit more about the fact that we are just over a month away from primary voting on September 4th. We started last week with a little tour around the state, which was very, very excellent. Go back and listen to it, along with Lizzie Wyant, our guest host, who did a fantastic job. And we'll check in on some races that we've talked about for the last 40 episodes of this podcast. Happy birthday, podcast. It's amazing. Kind of. <laughs> exactly. 40 episodes. So yeah, last week we talked about Boston. This week, we're headed all the way west. We're talking about the primary in the 1st Congressional District, which is the furthest west district in the state. For that, we have Shannon Young of Mass Live and the Springfield Republican. And then we're also going to look at some of the legislative races in and around the Amherst and Northampton area. And for that, we'll be joined by Fred of the Pod and MPG Research Director Rich Parr. Excellent. So let's dive in. Let's do it. Believe it or not, we're winding up for another presidential campaign. We're in the season when potential candidates find reasons to travel around the country visiting state fairs and county political events. It's also the time when the Massachusetts political establishment goes into overdrive, trying to figure out which candidates from here might be running. We have someone here who knows a thing or two about these candidates, Doug Rubin. Doug, welcome to the horse race. Oh, thanks for having me. We are happy to have you. Doug is the founding partner at Northwind Strategies and served as a senior strategist in the campaigns of Senator Elizabeth Warren, Governor Deval Patrick, and Congressman Joe Kennedy III, as well as many other campaigns. So we want to ask you about a few of these campaigns, but I really want to give listeners the, the sense of kind of your origin. So tell us about how Deval Patrick got on your radar and kind of how you two first started out. Uh, I was introduced to uh, Deval back in early 2005 by a client that I had worked with, a state senator, and was asked to go to his house to spend a little bit of time just talking through what a governor's race would look like. And I've done a lot of those kind of meetings in the course of my career, um, but that one was unique in that we spoke a lot about kind of how he would, you know, why he wanted to run and what he cared about and very little about the mechanics of running. Most candidates care about the how. Governor Patrick cared about the why, and I was taken right away by, uh, by that focus. And I think you've seen that over the course of his career, and I think it's one of the reasons why he's been so successful. So that was kind of how I got introduced to him. And 
very quickly from that, left the job that I was in in the state treasurer's office to uh, to try to take on this crazy campaign. How uh, plausible did it seem to you at that point? Not very plausible <laughs> at all. Most of the people that I had worked with in the business thought I was crazy. When I left, I had a nice job with Treasurer Tim Cahill in the treasurer's office. I was his first deputy treasurer, but I was really impressed by the governor and uh, and thought it was worth a shot. Do you still see those those things that stuck out to you about Deval Patrick at that time, does, does that still come up in your interactions with him now? It, it really does. I mean, even just to the point, he, he gave a speech at the NAACP convention down in San Antonio just a week or so ago, and uh, he had a line in there about how we shout anger and, and whisper kindness and how we should really be whispering anger and shouting kindness. And it's just that kind of interesting take on things and his kind of positive, kind of we're in this together outlook that I think still resonates with people um, and still makes him a unique candidate. It's sort of an unusual thing to be doing these days and way to be speaking these days. I mean, we hear so much confrontation, so much, you know, back and forth, sort of anger flying in both directions. Is that kind of campaign, is that kind of tone, does it have a place these days? Is it welcome? Is it something people are craving or is it hopelessly outdated? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that's actually the central question for Democrats in 2020 is what is the best path forward for the party in this era of Donald Trump? I think we've seen a lot of candidates take the other angle and try to match Trump's anger with anger on the left and so and, and push back on the left. And I, I think the governor has a very different outlook on that. And I can't tell you if that's the right one or not for this time. Almost all of the energy now is on the kind of more angry, kind of pushback against Trump side. But my gut is, is that long term, that where the governor is and, and his outlook might be the better play for the party going forward. Interesting. So how frequently are you in conversation with Governor Patrick even now? I mean, are you are you texting? Are you in touch? What What does that communication look like? Yeah, I mean, we we talk regularly. Obviously, we, we're trying to be helpful with his trip down to Texas. While he was at the NAACP, he also did some campaigning with Colin Allred, who's in a very competitive congressional race down there. I met with Beto O'Rourke. And so we, we've been talking regularly, just trying to be as helpful as we can as he tries to re-engage in the 2018 midterms. Do you think it's fair to classify, you know, his re-engagement in the campaign trail in 2018 as a potential ramp up to deciding whether or not he wants to run for president? I think everybody wants to try to put everything that's going on now in a 2020 lens. But, you know, if you know the governor and you know how much he cares about these issues and how passionate he is about these issues, it would be really strange to see him sit out such an important uh, election cycle. And you know, places where he thinks he can be helpful. He was down in Alabama with Doug Jones the last weekend and trying to be helpful there and in Texas and, and a few other places. It would almost be out of character if he wasn't in, engaged in somewhat in the 2018 midterms. Adding to the speculation that New York Times wrote um, Deval Patrick's starting what they only referred to as, quote, a political committee later this year. That leaves a lot to the imagination. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. I had a conversation um, with them about that. I don't I, don't, I think that was premature. I think that those conversations have not got to that level yet. So not even to what kind of political committee that would be, a political action committee versus a presidential exploratory committee? Yeah, he's been very clear that his focus on the 2018 midterms is a lot of important races going on right now. I think that's where he is going to focus his attention in addition to the work he's doing on a, at his day job. And then I think post then, I'm sure there'll be conversations. But until then, um, the focus is on 2018. 
For sure. I, I know that he said that he plans to go to other places. You said that he's planned to you know campaign in other locations other than Texas and Alabama. Where can we expect Governor Patrick to pop up over these next couple months leading up to November? Again, this, uh, we haven't finalized it yet, but I think the interesting piece about the governor, and it's a little counterintuitive, is he likes to go to places where Democrats don't traditionally go. And maybe where the DNC or the DCCC, the Democratic Central Campaign Committee, have written off. I think he wants to prove that this message resonates in areas all across the country, not just in traditionally Democratic areas or with traditionally Democratic voters. I think that's an important piece of the Democratic kind of challenge going forward. And and so I think you'll see him along in, in, in kind of some of the bigger races. You'll see him in places where Democrats traditionally don't go. All right. Well, let's turn to a, another name you know well, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, another state elected official who helped put in office. And ask the same question. How did she get on your radar first? When did you first become aware of the, a potential political interest by Elizabeth Warren? Sure. I, I actually got a, a call from David Axelrod about her um, and her interest in the race and was connected to her through David. And traveled down. I talked to her on the phone for an hour and a half. It was an amazingly interesting kind of first conversation with her about Massachusetts and politics and what she had done and what she cares about. And then traveled down to Washington, D.C. to meet with her and her husband in person. And uh, it's really hard to be around Senator Warren and to talk to her without getting very fired up about her and, and what she's been doing and, and the issues she cares about. So that was a, it was a very easy decision once I got to know her. And this was back in, what, 2012? Yeah, they, it all runs together, but I think, yeah, probably yeah. back in the early 2012. 2011 when yeah. she was first, first so. thinking about running. Um, interesting you bring up David Axelrod because he had a very interesting quote in the Boston Globe where he was talking about actually the difference between Elizabeth Warren and Deval Patrick and how they might approach um, engagement on the national stage or a presidential campaign. And he called it called their differences a microcosm of the larger debate of what's going on in the party and says there's a body of thought that to beat Trump you have to be as pugilistic as Trump. There's another body of thought that an exhausted nation is going to look for someone who can restore some sense of values and civility and lift up those institutions that have been torn apart. So two, the way he puts it, it's sort of two different styles between Elizabeth Warren and Deval Patrick. Is that a fair distinction to make between the two of them? Yeah, I think, I mean, I respect David, but I think sometimes those differences are overblown. I mean, on the issues and the work and and the values, they're very, very consistent and similar. And I think for most voters, that's what they care about is what do you stand for? What have you done? Are you willing to fight for me? Are you going to stand up for the issues I care about? And on those things, they're very, very similar, I think, in, in that regard. I think that there's an energy and a drive with Senator Warren and a willingness to engage in the in the back and forth um, that is maybe slightly different from where the governor is on some of these things, but equally as effective. I, I think that Senator Warren gets short thrift on a lot of the national conversations because she gets pigeonholed in this kind of left-right paradigm. I think her message of economic insecurity and standing up for people who don't have a voice in the economy resonates across a lot of different kind of demographics, a lot of different regions. I think she has the opportunity to really be a a strong national player on that. I think she'll surprise a lot of people because she will play in areas that traditional kind of liberal, conservative kind of scheme doesn't, it doesn't look like she will, but she will resonate with those voters. You could imagine, though, that the tone of a campaign between Elizabeth Warren and Donald Trump seems like it would be quite different than a campaign between Deval Patrick and Donald Trump. I think that's probably true. I think a lot of that is Donald Trump. (laughs) I think his go-to is to get as quickly to the gutter as possible and try to drag people with him. 
I think how Democrats respond to that and the message they deliver is going to determine whether we can beat him or not. I worry that we underestimate Trump still to this day, despite all the things he's done and his victory. I still think people feel like this is going to be a race where he's going to be defeated by Democrats in 2020. And I think right now, if I had to put a marker on it, I would think he's the favorite for re-election right now. We have work to do as Democrats. We have to take this seriously. We have to organize. We have to nominate the right candidate. And we've got to get people out to vote. It's interesting how you're talking about Senator Warren and how she would she can play to different areas that people may not necessarily expect. Do you think that she's going to run for president? I don't have any inside information on that. I think she's clearly positioning herself in a way that, that you know, assuming a successful re-election in November, that she would be a top-tier candidate. I hope she does. I think she would be a really strong candidate. I think she has a voice and a perspective that we need in the Democratic Party. So I hope that she does. It looks from the outside like she's positioning herself to do that, but I don't know for certain. Doug, I know that you yourself have worked in national political settings, what, both in Ohio and Iowa, I believe. If if either of these candidates or anyone else actually ran, do you see yourself being involved in a national political setting? <laughs> I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, look, if, if Governor Patrick or Senator Warren ran and they felt that I could be helpful— I would absolutely be there. I love both of them. I think they bring, I think they're tremendously important to the, to Massachusetts and to the country right now and the visions they bring and, and the policies and the values that they would espouse. So, you know, I think if that's a long way down the road, but obviously if they thought I could be helpful, I would, I would definitely consider it. So one uh, characteristic of Senator Warren's poll numbers here in Massachusetts has been that she's had very sticky support and very sticky opposition. You know, it's usually been sort of mid-50s-ish favorable or, or job approval and mid-30s-ish on the other side and very strongly partisan polarization. Is there something that she could do to avoid that on the national stage, some way to sort of reach out, maybe not all the way to the right, but to the middle um, and to the middle even slightly right-leaning and have a different outcome in terms of what her poll numbers are nationally than what we've seen here in Massachusetts. Yeah, first of all, I agree with that those are poll numbers. I don't necessarily agree that that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, But here there's just so many more Democrats. I mean, nationally, she'd have to get more independence than she has to get No here. question. But I, I think there's this fine balance that candidates have to make, and you get caught up in this favor unfavorable. It's It happens a lot in Massachusetts because we see Governor Baker, who has extremely high favorables and low unfavorables. The thing that I like to look at when you look at those numbers is the very favorable and the very unfavorable. Because to me, like the very favorable are people who are going to work for you, who are going to come out, who are going to talk to their friends and neighbors, who are going to get excited. Elizabeth Warren is in the high 30s in terms of very favorable. Of that 50, 60 percent that she has, a big chunk of that are people just passionate about here. Those people help you win elections. They talk to their neighbors. They build grassroots support. They go knock on the doors. Those are people you need. I would rather have that in a very high, very favorable number than a higher kind of number like Charlie Baker does, but very few people who are passionate about him. I think in a big contested race, those numbers that Elizabeth have are better than kind of broader but less deep numbers. I think we saw that against Scott Brown uh, when she ran. You know, there were a number of polls right before the election that showed that Scott Brown had higher favorability and people liked him better than Elizabeth Warren, and yet she won by eight points. And so I think when you're trying to build a campaign and get votes and get people to the polls, you have to look a little bit deeper at those numbers. And I actually think Elizabeth's 
passionate support is a big strength of hers. And I think she could take that national. Doug, one of the things that we're seeing, I think, in this cycle and that has held firm in this national political scene is the presence of these Massachusetts candidates. As someone who has been in this mix for a while, is there anything, you know, in the water here that makes these these <laughs> people from Massachusetts more viable than other people? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it's that. I think that you have a number of states like California, New York, Massachusetts that tend to be more progressive on the leading edge of kind of the progressive movement and some of these issues. And so that tends to breed candidates who are leaders on those issues as well, because that's where their district and that's what their voters want to see from them. So I think that's one of the reasons why, and it's one of the, you know, it's one of the nice things being from Massachusetts is that we have all these tremendous leaders who are very active and engaged and leading on some of these key issues, not just for the state, but for the country. And it naturally makes them kind of national players in this in the Democratic conversation. So speaking of being on the leading edge of the Democratic movement, I just want to ask you one question about the 7th Congressional District race before we leave. We've got two very progressive candidates yep. running there. Um, and even before, but especially since the Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Crowley upset, um, this race has been all over the news. What are you seeing there? Does Ayanna Presley have a chance of unseating Congressman Capuano? I think she definitely has a chance. There's no question about that. A lot of the energy on the ground is around candidates, new candidates who bring kind of a new perspective and a new energy to Congress. I think people are frustrated with the status quo there. You know, this race is different, I would say, than Crowley, because in that case, you had somebody who wasn't paying attention to the district, refused to debate. In this case, you've got somebody who's really good on the issues, who's done the work, who works really, really hard, has not forgotten where he came from, and has been a good kind of vote and a good person in, in Congress on this. So I, I think, you know, you don't have to say that Mike Kaplan's a bad person to say that it's good that Diana Presley is in this race. I think this competition is good for Massachusetts. It's good for the district. It brings new people to the, to the table. And I think if she's able to build an organization, which is really hard to do, but a grassroots organization that can identify and turn out the vote, I think she has a really good chance to win this race. I think that's the challenge for her in this race is can she harness that energy and excitement and then get it to vote on September 4th in the primary? Interesting. Uh, well, Doug Rubin, founder and principal of Northwind Strategies, thank you for being here on the horse race. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. As we talked about at the top of the show, we're continuing our trip around the state today, checking in on key races in the lead-up to primary voting, now just over a month away. Today, we're looking west to another race that has gotten more attention since the Ocasio-Cortez upset, the primary between longtime Congressman Richard Neal and challenger Tahira Amatul Wadud. Back to talk about it, we have someone watching this race very closely, Shannon Young of Mass Live and the Springfield Republican. Shannon, welcome back to the horse race. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the race has drawn a fair amount of coverage recently, even from national publications. Uh, again, particularly after the, the sort of the upset in New York, we've seen Politico, The Intercept, even The New York Times. How about on the ground? How interested do you sense the voters are there in, in this contest? Yeah, it seems like voters out here are excited to have another candidate to choose from this cycle. The past few years, uh, there's been a few sort of fringe candidates or independents, but to here is really the first real challenger to get some name recognition and some traction in, in the district, probably since, I want to say, 2012. So what are you looking at when you're judging that? I mean, we, there's been no public polling, really. How? What are the indications on the ground that this race is drawing some attention? 
Well, I think uh, one you look at, like you said, is that this race is getting picked up by media outlets who, you know, don't normally pay attention to to races out necessarily in the first congressional district. I think also it's just you're seeing a lot more campaign activity by Neil out here. Usually he's not as out front and and forward with his campaign. He gets more of a behind the scenes type of approach, but he really is making sure that he's getting his message out there, that he's being seen at events. I've seen yard signs up for both candidates, and and you seem to have people talking about this race ahead of a primary out here, which is something you don't usually hear in July. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, especially because one of the stories we heard after the Joe Crowley upset was that he didn't really seem to be taking the race all that seriously. So it's interesting to hear you say that uh, Congressman Neal does seem to be taking it a bit more seriously. But give us a sense about, um, to hear Amatul Wadud's background. I I know we've talked about it, but it's been a while. So remind listeners who she is and what's motivating her in this race. Right. So Tahir Amatul Wadud has uh, been a longtime figure out here in Western Massachusetts. She's a Springfield attorney. She's been an outspoken advocate for Muslim rights, for women's rights. Uh, she's on the Council of Islamic Relations in Western Massachusetts. I think she's also served on a few boards for, for women in the state. So she is somebody who's pretty uh, well known in the district, in the Springfield area. Uh, she, she didn't just sort of come out of thin air like some of these previous challengers who have come up against Neil. Yeah, and she's she's been running on a pretty progressive agenda, too, it sounds like. I mean, we're talking about things like single-payer health care, higher minimum wage, debt-free public education, and so forth. How's the reception been to her agenda, and how much of a contrast is it to Congressman Neal's? Right. Well, I would say that Tahira is more of a leftern version of Congressman Neal. Uh, a lot of the areas that she's been pushing hard on are things that progressives in the district have come out against Neal on. You know, for years now, they've been wanting him to come out strong for single payer health care. They've been wanting him to stand up to some of these oil and gas pipelines popping up in Western Massachusetts. And she really is sort of picking up the torch from uh, the Bernie wing and and the progressives out here who feel that they haven't been getting the type of representation that they would want out of Congressman Neal. Yeah. And Bernie Sanders, just to remind people, actually did quite well out in that part of the state. And that's one of the things I think that potentially makes people think this could be more competitive than it might otherwise seem. But one of the things that has been widely reported just in the last few days is the huge fundraising disadvantage. I mean, not to keep beating that drum, but to go back to the New York comparison. I mean, even there, there was a five to one difference between what Crowley raised and what Ocasio-Cortez raised. But that's that's not even close to the difference here. I mean, here we have what dude who reported $40,000 in her campaign account, where Congressman Neal has $3.5 million. Is there a chance for her? Um, is there a way to overcome this resource disadvantage? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. If you go through Congressman Neal's fundraising, you know, a, a large chunk of that is coming from PACs and committees. If you look at his individual contributions, it's a, it's not as big of a, of a gap. So I, it, there might be some room there for her to pick up. But I think the thing that Congressman Neal has an advantage when it comes to fundraising in the district is that he's been in office, you know, for almost three decades out here. He he knows what pockets to tap into. He knows who he can count on. And he has those funding sources he's been going to year after year. Also, his you know status as ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee also allows him to draw from deeper pockets, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country. Yeah, that's one of the things similar also to the Capuano race here closer to Boston, where you have a pretty senior member of the delegation running in a primary. So, you know, he can tap into sort of deeper wells in some cases for fundraising. But does that make a difference to voters? Does the whole idea that, you know, you've got a very senior Democrat, he's on ways and means, does that make a difference to voters? Or is that just something that sort of plays out in terms of fundraising differentials? 
I think it matters to some voters. I think, you know, I've, I've spoken to a few people who've been watching this race out here and they've said that, you know, that this district is different than the Capuano-Presley district. You know, it, this one is, it's more diverse, not just in terms of its geography, but in terms of its voters. And, you know, you, you have a lot of old school Democrats, you have a lot of progressive Democrats. And there's also just a lot of people out here who pay attention to politics who have for years and years, uh, a lot of sort of that old Democratic wing there. And I think that they understand what it means to have, you know, the potential next chairman of Ways and Means on there. I think among maybe some younger voters and the more progressive voters, you know, they don't necessarily want to see a candidate relying on PAC money. And they're going to make that argument that, well, he's beholden to this, this PAC or this industry. Interesting. So you're saying the voters out in that district are actually more diverse in ways that could play in this primary. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you like I said, if you look across the district, you have a lot of rural voters, but then you also have inner city voters in a way that I don't think you have anywhere across the state. And then you have you know, vastly different education levels between your pockets in, uh, you know, in the Berkshires and parts of the Springfield area. So I think it's just, you know, you're seeing a, a lot of people that you have to kind of appeal to to win the entire district instead of just say Springfield or, you know, the, the rural, the rural voters. Yeah, that that's uh, something I don't think we'd necessarily think about out here because you know diversity is one of the ways that the the Presley and Capuano race is often framed, and you know playing across the, this district here is something that I think gets talked about in terms of the different kinds of voters. But you're right; it's a, it's a helpful reminder to those of us a bit further away geographically that there's different kinds of diversity that are at, that will be at play out in the first congressional district as well. Um, one story that's come up in the last couple of days is the question that often does in sort of lopsided contests, and that's one of debates. So to hear Amatul Wadud wants more debates, um, Richard Neal doesn't seem to really want to debate and sort of, I don't know if blows off the question is the right word, but doesn't directly answer the question when asked about debates. Where are we on that? And what are the prospects of seeing the two together on stage? I think the prospects are better this election cycle than in the past of, of seeing the candidates debate. I said the last time Neil really had a real challenger was probably in 2012, and he did do some debates back then. You know, the last cycle, he just sort of laughed off the idea, as you said. He hasn't really been too keen to, to want to debate candidates in the past, but I think this time around, he, he might have to do at least one. I haven't heard of anything set in stone quite yet. I know some some people are trying to work on that, but I my gut feeling is that we're going to see at least one debate happen between these two. All right. Well, something to look forward to there. Shannon Young of the Springfield Republican, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. And now a word from the sponsors of this week's podcast. Think Massachusetts laws protect abortion access? Think again. If Roe versus Wade is overturned, Massachusetts women could face arrest for ending their own pregnancies. And if Trump has his way, more women will suffer. Women need abortion care with dignity, not jail time. Learn more at ProChoiceMass.org. Paid for by NARAL ProChoice Massachusetts and the National Institute for Reproductive Health Action Fund. Staying in the western part of the state, we're going to go just a few miles up the Pioneer Valley for our last segment, checking back in on a set of legislative races we've looked at before. Joining us remotely from far behind the tofu curtain, we have West Mass Bureau Chief Rich Parr and, of course, Research Director here at the Massing Polling Group. Rich, welcome back to the horse race. Thank you, Steve. So you're, of course, joining us from Northampton, and there's a number of open seats out there um, in the area. Uh, the, the region's lost some big-time representatives, some longtime members of the state legislature. Give us a sense of the races that are, that are contested out there and where they stand. 
Yes. So uh, we have an unusual number of open seats out here right now. It's a bit of a power vacuum. The big one, of course, is the Senate seat that was vacated by the former state Senate president, Stan Rosenberg. He represented Northampton, Amherst. Those are the two big communities and a couple of smaller communities. But we also have three open seats on the, on the House side. The, the representative for Northampton passed away, Representative Peter Cocott, and then we have two retirements for adjoining districts. And uh, we also have a House member representing Amherst, Solomon Goldstein-Rose, who left the Democratic Party, and that has created a primary race to challenge him in the general election. So we have two Democrats competing against each other to challenge Solomon Goldstein-Rose in the general in the fall. Yeah, there was such a power vacuum in a way that there were a, a number of other legislators out there who were sort of banding together, trying to be sure the region was still even represented during the budget process. Uh, any sense of how successful that was? Um, do we know yet what sort of made it into the budget and uh, how, how that effort made out? So uh, it seems as if the big issue was my community, Northampton, because we lost not only, as I said, Peter Cocott, who passed away earlier this year, but also Stan Rosenberg. So we had neither a representative nor a senator during the the budget process. And as I said, the two retiring representatives who abut our district, uh, John Seibach and uh, Stephen Kulik, kind of came in and and, and helped to pick up some of the slack, as did some farther flung representatives. I think Senator Eric Lesser, who's further down the valley, down in uh, the Longmeadow area near Springfield, also said that he would represent our interests. I can't think of any specific issues where where there was a win, but I also haven't seen any complaints in the media. I don't think anyone uh, is, is really lamenting that we lost out on any particular details or anything like that. So I think I think we made it through this period of taxation without representation, if you will, without without too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's something we don't take lightly here in Massachusetts, as you know. No. So but let's start off with the with the races now to fill the seats that that you just listed. And let's start with the Senate race. I mean when we last talked, there was just one candidate who actually filed before Stan Rosenberg had officially stepped down. It's gotten a lot more complicated than that. Tell us where things are now. Yeah, I think we're up to six candidates total now in that race. Um, Obviously, that's the big one. What happened was, as you said, Stan Rosenberg resigned days after the deadline for filing papers. And a single candidate, her name is Chelsea Klein, had filed papers to challenge Rosenberg. So she's on the ballot. Her name's going to be on the ballot. The mayor of Northampton, David Narkowitz, actually tried to get the uh, the state to extend the deadline so that more people could run so that there would be a, a uh, multiple names on the ballot, a competitive race. And the state refused to do that. But then what happened is you had a bunch of people start coming in as write-ins. And I believe we have four men, and uh, in- including Chelsea Klein, two women now, including two men who had been running for Peter Cocott's seat on the House side who decided to switch over to run as writing candidates for the Senate race. Interesting. And running as a writing candidate is usually a pretty, pretty significant uphill battle. Any sense of whether uh, it's likely to the fact that there are so many is changing how people are thinking about those odds and any of them emerging as favorites or any of them seem like they could potentially compete against the one candidate who actually is on the ballot? I think Chelsea Klein definitely has an advantage being the only person whose name is going to be on the ballot. But it's a very small district population-wise, and uh, it seems like everybody who, is, you know, the Democratic community, you know, is pretty tight-knit, knows each other pretty well. I would say the person to watch in this race of the writing candidates is, uh, is the female writing candidate. Her name is Joe Comerford. She's uh, also from Northampton, Chelsea Klein, and she are both from Northampton, as are, I think, a lot of the candidates, uh, the male candidates as well who are running. But she has a long history in uh, politics and activism, both nationally and in 
region. She worked for moveon.org. Uh, and she's worked uh, for a nonprofit that looked at the federal budget that was called the National Priority Center. And uh, the buzz around town is that she is probably the most likely challenger to Chelsea Klein. So I think it might end up being a kind of a two-woman race right now. Interesting. And how about the house races? What are you looking at there? On the house side, it, we also have a two-woman race in Northampton. Again, this is for Peter Cocott's seat. We have, and it's a very similar dynamic, I think, as, as what we're seeing emerge on the Senate side. We have uh, Peter Cocott's district director is running for his seat. And, uh, and then she's being opposed by, uh, by a woman named Lindsay Sabadosa, who is a, a local activist, one of the organizers of the local Women's March, which for a couple of years now has attracted a few thousand people to downtown Northampton when they've had it. So there's sort of an interesting dynamic emerging, I think, between kind of established political figures, folks who have been either held office or worked for people who have held office and who are now being endorsed by people who hold office. Versus folks like Chelsea Klein and Lindsay Sabadosa, who are, I would say, representing kind of a new a new wing of activism that's kind of sprouted up in the past couple of years since the presidential election. And you see that a little bit in the endorsements. So Chelsea Klein and Lindsay Sabadosa have been endorsed by progressive groups like Progressive Massachusetts, Mass Alliance, whereas Diana Seisnall, who is uh, Peter Cocott's former district director, and Joe Comerford are getting the endorsements of people like Mayor David Narkowitz of Northampton, the district attorney here, former Congressman John Olver has endorsed Joe Comerford, Robert Reich, the former Clinton administration labor secretary, who himself has run for governor of Massachusetts. He endorsed Joe Comerford too. So it's an, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. I think you're seeing kind of an, a new guard and an old guard type dynamic in those two races here in Northampton. Yeah, and that sort of echoes what we're seeing nationally as well. You've got a whole bunch of races where it's the longtime office holder or, or the insider versus the outsider. So um, definitely a set of races to watch for that dynamic as well. All right. Well, Rich Parr, thanks for rounding up the races going on out there in your region. And thanks uh, for joining us again in the horse race. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. So all kinds of things to watch um, from all of our guests today. But now it's time for our Something to Watch segment. And for that, I'm rejoined by Horse Race co-host Lauren Dzinski. Um Lauren, what is your Something to Watch this week? Yes, my Something to Watch is technically something to read. New York Magazine came out with a 7,000-word profile on Senator Elizabeth Warren. It's a really interesting peek behind the curtain of who Senator Warren is kind of behind the scenes. There's some really interesting anecdotes about just her, her time at home with her dog and her husband in a way that kind of humanizes Senator Warren in a way that we don't necessarily see as frequently. There's not a lot lot of super breaking news out of it but it does it sets her up to run for president it's stopping short from actually declaring that because there's no way that Warren is gonna make it official in a magazine profile piece but it's definitely setting Senator Elizabeth Warren up to do something pretty big so those who are watching 2020 and you know future moves by Elizabeth Warren should read this piece in New York Magazine. And those of you who have a few minutes to read 7,000 words, um, go for it. My thing actually is also related to Elizabeth Warren and Charlie Baker. There was a new poll out this morning from Morning Consult. Um, they're the group that we've talked about before that does these enormous sample sizes with hundreds of thousands of voters nationwide where they ask approve, disapprove numbers for every governor and every senator in America. Um, governor Baker is once again the most popular governor in America, which he has 
often been, or at least has usually been in the top three. Interestingly, Elizabeth Warren is also sticking right about where she has been, which we talked a bit about with Doug Rubin, um, with approval in the mid-50s and disapproval in the mid-30s. You know, we're pretty far along in the campaign calendar right now. It might not feel like it because there hasn't been a lot of campaign activity, but Neither one of them's poll numbers has really moved. The challengers aren't that well-known, and the incumbents really aren't seeing their poll numbers move that much. So that's my something to watch. All right, let's do some trivia. Trivia time. (laughs) I know that's really why you called in, so let's let's do some trivia. Honestly, it's everyone's favorite segment, including mine. I couldn't go (laughs) to the beach without first doing trivia. All right, let's answer it. So last week's question, which, uh, Lauren, you were out for, was returning to the long-running theme of uh, Beacon Hill and in and around the State House. And the question was, the Golden Dome over the State House was originally painted yellow before being gilded with gold leaf in 1874. It was also painted another color at what point? And the question was, what was the color? And the answer is gray. That happened during World War II when the dome was painted gray once again to prevent reflection during blackouts and to protect the city and building from bombing attacks. Which I just thought was fascinating. I had no idea. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. And now on to this week's question. It's short, simple, and to the point. What is the lawn ornament that was designed and produced en masse in Massachusetts until uh, about 2006? It's ugly. That's a hint. It, it's ugly. I, I think beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I don't think it's that ugly. But a thousand non-flying trivia points awarded to those who get the answer to this question. And we'll, especially if you encase it in one of these and mail it to Horse Race Global Headquarters, we'll give you even more. That would be incredible. That, that's like a, it's like a Trojan horse, but for trivia. Anyway, that's all the time we have. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski of Politico. Our producer this week is Zach Mega. Thank you all for listening.